Let me open in prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for your mercies that are new every day, for giving us breath and life, for giving us your Son, and for giving us your Word that instructs us on how to live and how um, to honor you and, and to serve you in, in the areas of life, the vocations that you've given us. I pray that as we reflect this morning on the truths of the gospel and how they reshape our understanding of our, of our work in the world, that you would renew our minds by your Spirit and equip us to serve you in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, week 10. We're on the a bit of a turning point in the class in that we're finishing up the material that I've been relying heavily on Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. If you've been reading along where we've been working through it, we're now towards the end. We're going to have a couple-week break for the holiday, and then when we come back in January, we're going to be addressing a little more practical issues that... Um, that are, and I'm going to be relying more heavily on the book, the other book that I mentioned earlier, the book by um, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert called The Gospel at Work. So, well, five weeks after the new year, and we'll, we'll just hit those topics, choosing a job, balancing work, family, and ministry, relationships at work, sharing the gospel, and success and value after the new year. So, this being our last week with Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, we're kind of finishing off his reflections um, upon how the gospel reshapes our perspective on work. So we've seen that it shapes our worldview. Uh, That was a new story for work. We've seen how it shapes our ethic, how it gives us faith and love, and how that comes to bear in our vocation. And then last week we talked about how the gospel shapes how we view trials, suffering, various ways that the thorns and thistles of the curse grow up in the fruit in the fields of our vocation. So this week we're going to talk about uh, the chapter is called a new power for work, but it's really having to do with an inner state of our hearts, whether being um, well, well, let me just jump to the next slide. And um, um, we've talked about how most of these aspects of the gospel in the past class about how, we have faith in God, we have love for others that motivates our work, uh, how we have a new perspective on trials, how the Holy Spirit guides us. And this week we're going to be talking about this inner rest and peace with God. So that, you know, a Christian truck driver or widget maker or law enforcement officer may be doing the same external behaviors, maybe functioning in a similar way as a non-Christian, but the heart of the of a Christian will be in a much different place because of how the gospel transforms everything. And ultimately our relationship with God is what we're going to be thinking about today. So what I put here is the main idea for in regard to inner rest and peace with God. The gospel transforms our work and rest because we are saved by grace alone and adopted as children of God. The imperatives of vocation come after the indicatives of the gospel. If you've, you probably, maybe that that concept is familiar to some of you, the imperatives and indicatives, that the balance between the two. Indicatives being statements of fact, things that have already happened, that are done. Um, You see this often in the New Testament where there's, like in the whole book of Ephesians, for example, you start off with what God has done for us in Christ, and then you get the imperatives of, you know, therefore live this way. And I want to argue today that, that the imperatives of our vocation, what we're called to do in the various areas of life, how we're serving God, serving others, caring for the world, caring for families, all of these things, that they have to be grounded in the indicatives of the gospel, that those things that are already done, accomplished facts of the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone and adopted as children of God, meaning we already have an identity as children of God that's not dependent on our success or failure or performance in our vocation. So, so as we talk about this concept, there's going to be a spectrum in which you know, we can think about non-believers maybe who really have no understanding of the gospel and who seek to, they look to their 
work as a way almost to to either define their identity, would be one way to put it, or to redeem themselves, to find purpose and meaning for their lives. Um, so we can look maybe at an extreme of some people who would reject the gospel, have no understanding of it, and live their lives that way. But I want also to reflect about how even as believers, when we know the gospel, we still can fall into that way of thinking, that our performance in our vocation somehow alters our standing, or that you know when we fail or that we've lost standing with God, or we can, you know, we can enter these same questions of identity, there's still, we can still struggle with those as believers. So I hope that we'll see this morning how the gospel really transforms this. So, and it really hinges on getting this order correct, because if you, if you flip it around, if you say um, vocation comes first, and then your standing, your, the indicatives, who you are in Christ, who your identity, your purpose, your meaning, if that comes after the Imperatives of what you're called to do, then we're basically misunderstanding the gospel. So Tim Keller talks about this as what I've just been referring to as the work under the work. And what he means by that is, so there's the work that you do that you're actually, it's like on your, you know, your job description, the things, the actual activities that you're doing that to actually become, to actually get paid. But then there's the work that he refers to that's underneath that, which he refers to it as getting a sense of yourself through productivity and success. Or maybe it's bringing home a paycheck so that you can enjoy real life. And that might even turn work into a pointless grind. But it's this this work that's underneath it. Maybe this this inner motivation that's motivating you to do the work that you're doing, what, to find your significance, to chase away your sense of insecurity. You want to have, you want to be needed. You want to have a role to play. You want, you're um, you're finding your identity in your work, or even just funding your diversions. Just making money so that you can go live what's do what's really important. Uh, He refers to that as the work under the work. You know, even this little picture over here, you see the man with the world on his shoulders. Um, Some of you might have read or heard of Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, and she, she pictures this class of people who are really productive and who are work hard and persevere and they're the ones who are really upholding society so it might be a sense even of that that like you feel like you have to do your job so that you know you can with uphold your corner of the world whatever that might be your your business your your department your family your you know the sense of doing your work so that you can be significant be have meaning that's what tim keller refers to as the work under the work now we'll contrast that and just uh, we're going to re- look at other ways that we see this in Scripture, but if we just look at John nineteen thirty, you can remember this fairly famous, just short statement of Jesus. It's one word in the Greek. When Jesus had received the sour right wine, this is when he's on the cross, uh, being crucified. He says, "It is finished," and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's like the gospel indicative right there. It is finished. It's a statement of fact. It's done. When he had, when he had made that statement, he is saying he's finished all that was necessary to make us right with God. And all that flows out of that, to redeem us, not only to pay the penalty for sin, but to secure our calling our, as adoption as his children, and the, our future resurrection, the new creation, the redemption of the whole world. All of that had been accomplished, paid for, on the cross. That's the indicative that really grounds the imperatives of what we're called to do. One um, way you can see the difference of this, some of you, maybe, I don't know, hopefully all of you, if you haven't, you should go home and watch it sometime. Chariots of Fire, great movie. You saw, you see in Chariots of Fire a competition, an athletic competition between ultimately, well, you, you follow two, two runners, Eric Little, who later became a missionary to China, and then uh, Howard Abrams was his competitor. You see him there on the left. Um, but you see not only their athletic competition, but you see their two uh, worldviews, the way that they looked at their running. Howard Abrams, he raced because he had to win. It was literally what he said would justify his existence. Winning was what he lived for. He had to win. Whereas Eric Little... You know, he famously said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. He was running out of a desire to please God. And that's what gave him actually the freedom, if you remember, to not run in the gold medal race 
of the Olympics, I forget what year that was, but he declined to run in the gold medal race because it was on a Sunday, and he, his conscience wouldn't allow him to, to do that. So you see these two men you know, doing the same activity, both running very fast, running races, but doing it for different reasons, where um, the one had to win because it was actually part of his identity in winning and, and excelling and Eric Little who could actually walk away from it and walked away from it not only from that one race but then left to go be a missionary so I would like to just ask you to think about that you know if you think about not you know we're not Olympic runners but what does it look like in your vocation when you have to win when you have to achieve something what does that look like I'll just open that up it might be different based on your different vocations but how does that change that if you have that same perspective if you're kind of and you might find yourself even you know changing shifting one way or the other but if you have that perspective that you have to achieve you have to win versus a perspective more like Eric Little and just enjoying the work for what it is how does that change your work and then also related to that how does it change your rest like a lot of pressure <laughs> to, to live that way. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of pressure to live that way. What does that look like when you feel like you have to win? I think typically you're, you don't really care who you're running over in the process to, to make it in the first place. Right. You do one thing. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to short circuit uh, or take shortcuts or... Yeah, uh, be achieving some sort of standard, some goal becomes more important than how you get there. The ends justify the means. Steve? Maybe it's off the top a little bit, but a good example of this is just the culture of the Japanese. Like they're in this, they have to work so much, they're not kind of a population. Yeah. And I, maybe I'm not as familiar with the Japanese, but I guess what I'm thinking of is. Sometimes you might, whether it's cultural or family expectations, there's sometimes for us having to win just means working ourselves so hard to, to achieve some, some expectations. Maybe it's what your parents have put on you or your grandparents or your culture, but you know, working yourself to achieve, to meet someone's expectations. Any other thoughts on that? What, when you have to win, when, you're, when your identity is tied up with your success, your performance in your vocation. How else does it change, Marcus? I'd say as far as the rest, you're not going to have a whole lot of rest because it's going to be like a 24-7 like life commitment, not like an eight-hour-a-day commitment. Right. Yeah, it's going to change your rest as well. It's going to be hard It's going to be hard to rest if that's where you're finding your identity. Raymond? Uh, I was just going to say that uh, this is something I've noticed for a long time now is that uh, in the, if you play the game so that in order to win, everybody else has got to lose. Right. There's generally only one winner, and that means that almost everybody else is going to lose. And you're likely, the odds are, you're not going to win. So if you have to win, or, or have that sense of winning in your vocation, and you get beat out by somebody who's better, smarter, or faster than you, um, then you're going to be trusted by that. And you're you're going to live under the weight of this... This, this sense of failure. Right. Yeah, it goes both ways. It's like a double-edged sword because you may, you may be reaching for that success and you may run over people to get it, but then when you, when you don't get it, you're, like you said, you're, you're crushed. And Caleb, did you want to add something? I was just thinking, I feel like if it was my identity, it would cause me to be pragmatic in the sense that like, I feel like I have to earn a certain status in front before the Lord. And then my work, I don't know, if I could just tie in that I would feel like I'm earning something, earning favor in the Lord because of my winning or my loss. Right. So... As we're thinking about this, I'd like to suggest that if that is true, and all of us are going to struggle with that at times, as we're just, but when we fall into that way of thinking, where it's actually a form of bondage, that for like for Howard Abrams, if he has to win, he's really in bondage to that to that goal, to that ideal. Whether that comes from inside yourself to find your own meaning and significance, or from outside, from you know meeting someone else's expectations. Um, that's really a form of bondage. If you want, let's look at, I think this is really interesting to see that, but we're going to look in Deuteronomy chapter 5 at the, this is the second giving of the law, uh, when Moses is reminding the Israelites about the Ten Commandments, and that'd be right before they go into the Promised Land. I'll just go ahead and read this, but maybe as I do, I want you to notice what's different here 
either from your own memory or if you want to turn there, but notice what's different between the Deuteronomy version and what you read in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, He begins with the same preamble, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's before the giving of the law. He reminds them they've already been redeemed. They've been brought out of slavery. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then I'm going to skip the next few, but we'll jump to the fourth commandment, where he says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Does anyone remember what's, what's different here between Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20? Right. Yep, it's the same command, observe the Sabbath day, six, work, for, work for six days, rest for the seventh day as a Sabbath to the Lord. But in Exodus 20, he grounds, the command is grounded in the creation model of God working for six days. Therefore, God, God worked for six and rested for one, therefore you should do the same. Which is still true, that, that's, the, that's the creation model that God gives us. But here, interestingly, Moses gives the same command, but now he grounds it not in creation, but in redemption. He looks at back to the, their rescue from Egypt. They were a slave, and the Lord brought them out there. That's, that's the exodus, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so, you think back to what that would be like as a slave. If you were a slave, your Egyptian taskmasters likely wouldn't have given you a Sabbath to rest. You would you would work, you know, twenty four seven, three sixty five. They've got to get build their bricks to make their, you know, cities, whatever it was. So in that sense, here we're to see that rest, observing the Sabbath day, was actually a declaration of their freedom, that they were no longer slaves to their Egyptian taskmasters. That it's a symbol of their freedom from slavery. So similarly, I think for us we can see the same thing that. For us, being able to step aside from work for a day, following this this God-given pattern, six days of labor, one day of rest, is a declaration of our freedom. That Yes, work is a good thing that God has given us to do, but it's not our identity. We can step away from it, we can leave it, we can trust it to God, that it's something He's given us, and He calls us to actually step away from it and not rest for a time, or not work for a time. You know, especially in an agricultural society, you know, you, you saw that in the, in the law. You know, they not only work six days and rest one, but then they would work a field for six years and then leave it, leave it for a year. It was built into the law was an aspect of trust that, yes, this is good work that I'm doing, but it's not, God is ultimately the one who provides. And he's the one who, he gives us work and he, our identity is in him. And he's rescued us from from Egypt. He's rescued us as believers. He's rescued us from sin. We no longer have to look to work to define us, to give us meaning and identity. That's not to say, I know there's some who may have to be in a season of life where you have to work on a Sunday. And I'm not, I think that's unavoidable at times. But we do see that the biblical model, six days of work, one day of rest is actually good for us. It's a, it's a celebration of our freedom. And it's, remember, it's made for us. Jesus said the Sabbath was made, uh, was not made for, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. You know, we see that also you can compare those two approaches in Psalm 127. There, I don't know the author, but he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Yeah, I don't know if you can... I know I can relate to this. You know, eating the bread of anxious toil. That phrase, I feel like over the years, I've just there's been seasons where I've really struggled with worry in the area of work. And how is it all going to get done? How are we going to... You know, am I gonna am I gonna have work in three months or six months or where am I gonna find the next project or how do I deal with this conflict? I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can worry about the about our work, um, which really makes it anxious toil when we're carrying those worries ourselves. We're 
we're place where we're wearing those or holding those burdens ourselves and the psalmist here says that that's vain actually if you're 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 laboring in vain you actually may be achieving success you may i mean you may build a city you may stay awake at night but there's going to be a, a striving a um, an emptiness a vanity to your work if you're pushing yourself um, and not trusting the Lord, which I think you see in, in that last phrase, he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, when you sleep, you lay down at night for however many hours, I don't know, seven or eight, maybe, and you don't do anything. <laughs> you're, you're, you're inactive. You're not sustaining your, anything. You're not earning. You're not productive. You're not doing anything. You're resting. And in that seven to eight hours, we're seeing it's actually a a way to, to, to trust God. That God God doesn't need you, the world doesn't is gonna keep spinning, things are gonna keep happening even though you're not there sustaining them. I know there's been times where that's not been true for me, where I've been anxious and I've been unable to sleep. And I just I feel that frustration of I guess wanting to be able to just rest and trust the Lord, but I know that's not always that's that's sometimes a struggle. The author of Ecclesiastes Reflected on that, and in Ecclesiastes two, you know what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? All his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. We see, you know, that that's the negative side of it. I guess the anxiety and not being able to rest, uh, which you know, unfortunately, is a reality for us many times. When we are anxious, though, I think we can look to the instructions from Jesus. And it's interesting, you know, he, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, his instructions about ang- being anxious, he, he uses labor and, and toil as his um, example, as he's instructing us how not to be anxious. He says twice, actually three times in, the, in these verses, I won't read them straight through, but you know, he starts off in verse 25 to not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you would drink, what, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's actually almost the same thing he says in verse 31, where he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? So he says this command twice, don't be anxious about those things. And you might add, you know, your, our modern questions there. You know, we may not in our society ask as much, sometimes we may ask, you know, what are we going to eat? But we may also ask, you know, how am I going to retire? Or how am I going to pay for college or how am I going to you know um, have work in the, in the next year or something like that you know those questions might be a little different for us but you could substitute those questions that cause anxiety in, in our areas of life as well and instead of being anxious Jesus well Jesus points us to two examples he points to the birds of the air in verses 26 and 27 and then he points to the lilies of the field in, in 28 through 30 and he says, they don't, the, the birds don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and the lilies, they don't toil or spin. They're not working, they're not laboring, they're not planning for the future, and yet God, your Heavenly Father, provides for them. He richly provides for them. You know, He's the one who causes the, the rain to fall. He's the one who provides food for the birds. And so, you know, who are you? Uh, you know, you have little faith. You know, that's us, to worry about these things. Twice He calls God your Heavenly Father. Notice that. He's your heavenly father. He cares for the lilies and the, and the birds. He's going to care for you. You're his child. That's your identity as his child. And then he closes with, it, with a similar with it saying in the third time, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. You know, a lot of times when we're anxious, it's because we're trying to, to carry things that God is actually doesn't want us to carry. We're trying to, to figure things out on our own. We're not entrusting them to him. You know, in First Peter, Peter encouraged us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us to do or commanding us to do in Matthew 6. And I know in the areas of vocation, it's particularly important for us to combat those feelings of anxiety and to practice rest. You know, it may be hard. Uh, you know, I've, there's been seasons in my life where it's been hard to just unplug and not not worry um, not keep my mind spinning about the next the next challenge or the problems I'm facing in my work but Jesus is com- commanding us to do that to to practice this this pattern of rest and really seeing that rest 
and not being anxious as a letting go of your problems and just trusting that God's He's bigger than that. He's my Heavenly Father and He'll care for me. Ultimately, that trust in the Lord, I guess I, th- I think we see it most beautifully pictured in this invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, Jesus is speaking to his, well, speaking to the crowds, and he gives this invitation in verse 28. Would someone read for us those three verses, Matthew 11, 28 to 30? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So, what do you, what's the irony that you see in this, in this passage? Taking, taking your yoke. It's work. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like work. Right. And yet he's saying this is rest. This is where you find rest. Right. Yeah, so go ahead, Raymond. You want to add something? Yeah, it's still work. It's just not my work. It's, it's mm. I was wondering if you were going to get to the Hebrews on this. Um, well, I don't know if I, 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 I'm not sure if I'm going where you're going, but I'll, I'll go through what I had and then feel free to add yeah. um, if, I, if I don't get to it. But yeah, that's what I, the irony is that, you know, he's calling out to those who are, who labor and are heavy laden, who need rest because he's saying that he'll give them rest. So they, they're, they're restless. They, they need rest, which, you know, it's not, this is not just simply economic. Like he's not just talking about those who work in a vocation. Really, he's talking to about to all people. All of us are those who need to find our rest in him. We're all, in a sense, laboring and heavy laden in that we're all living under the curse and having to find meaning and purpose and significance and ultimately find a way to be right with God. Whether we would put it in those terms or not, we're all going about activity to try to earn our redemption in a sense that's what it means i think to be to be laboring and to be heavy laden he says he'll give you rest but then he uses this imagery of a yoke which you know it seems like the opposite of rest i mean you put a yoke on a pair of oxen when you want them to go work and work hard you're going to put this yoke upon them and then they're going to you're going to drive them you know to pull your cart or pull your plow or you know whatever uh, you're going to have them do it a yoke um, and, a, and a burden in verse 30, those aren't, you wouldn't typically think that's restful. But that's what Jesus is, is promising us here. He says to take his yoke upon us. And that's why it becomes restful. It's actually, it's no longer our yoke, it's his yoke. He and he, he says in verse 29, is gentle and lowly in heart. So the irony is that in, you know, in order to get to really be free from the cycle of working and being heavy laden and, and carrying this burden ourselves, we have to exchange that burden for the yoke that Jesus offers. We have to, the path to freedom is actually the path to in subjecti- subjecting ourselves to Jesus. There's, it's very similar to what, you know, that same irony that you get elsewhere in um, the Gospels where Jesus said, if you would save your life, you must lose it. Uh, you can't, if you try to hold on to it yourself, if you try to live your own way, you'll lose your life. But if you will come to me and take my yoke upon you, then you will find rest for your souls. That's uh, reminded me of what Augustine said, that our hearts are, are restless until we find our rest in him. Do you want to add something, Ray? Yeah, so then I wanted to go to Hebrews 4.10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So it's like I'm not... I'm no longer striving after the wind, trying to make myself into some kind of something for my own sake. Right. Um, I I've entered into. I still work. I still got a mission. I still right. got a job, and I still got stuff that I got to do. And, you know, but it's like the the um, the center for it is different. The basis right. upon which I do it is different, and I'm not trying to make myself right with God thereby. But I'm already right with God, and now I do the mission He's given me. Right. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's restful. It is. Yeah, it's still productive. You're still working, but it's from a different heart orientation. So it becomes actually restful instead of, you know, that work under the work. You're no longer doing that. Um, that you've been at, your identity is, is grounded in Christ. Yeah, Marcus? There might be another aspect to this passage where it's not just like work that you do for a living, but works under the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I think you're right, and I think that they are sometimes similar in that the work that, that's what I mean by the work under the work, is sometimes the work that we do for a living becomes the work by which we're trying to, you know, make ourselves right with God by, you know, earning His favor. We might not say, you know, we're not under the law in that sense, but the same heart issue of trying to find, you know, make ourselves right, earn our standing, or perform, I think. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that? Or, yeah. Did you want to say something, Steve? I think, I think there's probably another aspect to this, is that most of the time when we're anxious about things, it's because we are seeking to control the situation mm-hmm. in some way. I need to gain control right. and figure out how this is going to work out and guide it along. So I toil and I'm anxious about how I'm going to do that. Right. I think there's a sovereignty of God who's saying, I'm in control. Right. I'll take care of this. You're putting a yoke upon yourself that you're never meant to carry. It's all mm-hmm. mine. So take, let's give me control. Right. And then you're going to find out. Yeah. Then you'll worry about the things that I want you to worry about. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's no, there's no option not to have a burden on you. You're either going to carry it yourself or you're going to give it to him and then take take his burden upon you. We can't we can't escape that. There's no burdenlessness a burden, burdenless way to live our lives. Did you want to add something, Steve? Or? I was gonna I have to give a job. Marcus. Marcus. To me it seems that's a big part of it. Because Jesus' yoke is gentle. It is he's lonely at heart. Versus the law which was oppressive. Yeah. I, that's that's all. It just seems yeah. like I think that's a, a big part of this, right? Yeah, and ultimately, um, well, let me get to the next slide because I'll—I think I'll come back to that thought. But um, this is um, Tim Keller. I'm quoting from his book *Every Good Endeavor*. He says the very definition of a Christian is someone who rests in the finished work of Christ instead of his or her own. Remember, God was able to rest in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, only because his creative work was finished. And a Christian is able to rest only because God's redemptive work is likewise finished in Christ. When the work under the work has been satisfied by the Son, all that's left for us to do is serve the work we've been given by the Father. Um, I think, Marcus and Steve, I think this is what, I think you're, talking about the same thing when he's talking about he's calling it the work under the work but it's this striving to you know in the, for the Jews maybe it was to fulfill the law but even for us I think we can live in the same way of earning our earning a right standing with God making a name for ourselves feeling our identity through our work we can do it in other ways besides just you know our job but I think that isn't a big area where we have have to wrestle with um, that tendency. So when that work has been, sat- the work under the work has been satisfied by the Son, when He's completed it, when he, and so we said it is finished, um, it doesn't mean we have a life of uh, uh, leisure and um, you know, inactivity, but He says here, all that's left for us to do is serve the work we've been given by the Father. So now we still work, but we now, now it's actually a, um, a calling from our Heavenly Father who, who's loved us, who's given himself for us, who's called us to be his child, and now he's sent us out to do perhaps even the same work. You may have the same job that you did you know, before you were saved, but now it's no longer this you know, effort to earn your salvation, but an effort to serve your Heavenly Father. Does that, you want to add to that or question well, that? Maybe I'm misunderstanding. Yeah. But to me, it, it, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong at all. Um, because I, I see that, you know, we... You know, our um, earthly work can become our God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but is it not also, or to me, it seems like the main point of it is you no longer have to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Your work now is to spread the gospel. <clears throat> not obviously, we don't want to kill people, right? But like, or steal, but like that part of it is fulfilled. You, you were not burdened by that yoke. Uh, like I, I'm only assuming, but what is it like six hundred and some odd laws that even the Jews now have to follow, mm-hmm. right? We don't have that. Yeah, I think. Unless I'm totally misunderstanding this. Well, uh, I think we gotta remember that the law is good. It's not. It's not oppressive. The law is good, and yeah. we want. But our 
what Christ has done is fulfill the law for us. So now we delight in the law, right? I right. delight in that. So I want to be good out of the love for Christ, the love for God, because the law is good. It's not not the evil taskmaster. It's a yeah. It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. To bring us to Christ, but it yeah. can't accomplish salvation. Right. In and of itself. Did you want to speak to his question? Or I just wanted to say that um, you know, uh, getting up in the morning and doing what God has put in front of me to do with whatever strength He supplied me. Um, with an understanding that it's this, this is what he's given me he's, he's given me a wife he's given me these children he's given me this ground to work or whatever it is you mm-hmm. know and that um, and that it's, it's not it's not for me anymore it's not I'm not serving myself anymore you know and I that's, that was the worst time of my life when I was spent all my time trying to trying to serve myself because I'm, I'm a horrible master you know? yeah um and and I don't I don't even feel the need to like over spiritualize all of this stuff. You know, like oh, I'm spreading the gospel. I'm spreading the gospel by doing what you put in front of me to do, and by by being that picture in, in just the little interstices of life, little things that all add up to the big picture. You know what I mean? And um, and I'm not worried about failing the lie anymore. I'm not worried about any of that other kind of stuff. I'm just I'm just I'm concerned for doing what he's given me to do with whatever power he supplies me, you know, to the best of whatever ability he's given me. You know, and it's not... And there's, it's that rest. It's so restful. It's so yeah. <laughs> gentle and easy and better than what I was trying to do before. Yeah, so I don't know if... I, maybe maybe we're still, you know, ships crossing, no, I, I don't know, but... I, I um, get it. I just... Yeah, I think it's... I think what... You know, it's really that tendency to justify ourselves, which for the Jew, the law became that, like, if I keep the law, I'll be right with God, even though that wasn't the intent of the law. But we do the same thing, uh, even though we're not under the law. That same tendency to justify ourselves, to make ourselves right, to, is it crops up in, in all of our hearts. Um, that's part of sin, you know, wanting to make our own path to God. And everyone may not struggle with that in the same way in their vocation, but I think it is a common way that we view our vocation or um, you know, think that our performance is going to make us right with God. So, so I'm just going to point it to a few points of application, and then I'm going to call up our um, interviewees today. But uh, you know, reflecting on the gospel, that our standing with God is secure, and it's based on Jesus' completed work. It is finished as he said on the cross. We can face failure without losing our identity. You know, losing a job, being unemployed, or, you know, messing up a project, or getting demoted, or all of those things can really shake our sense of identity, our, our purpose, but um, especially true if, if that's where your identity is. If you're, if you're standing, if you're, if you're looking to your work to provide that for you, it can really be shattering, which is why I think run into some people at, uh, at times who I talk with them about retirement I find that they're actually very uh, they're unable to retire because they just they don't have an identity outside of work and so the thought of leaving their work becomes uh, like a loss of their life like they don't know who they are if they don't have this work to do so the gospel recenters us in that regard it also allows us to humbly admit our mistakes I mean I know in my industry that's very hard for people to do especially like engineers and people that are supposed to be smarter you know to, they make mistakes or we're all we all make mistakes and just to humbly admit it you know I was wrong that was a mistake let's try to figure out how to fix it um, you know I think that's probably true in a lot of vocations but the gospel allows us to, to just to do that to admit our our mistakes then we can also work hard without becoming a slave to success you know we're called to work hard the gospel doesn't free us to be you know lazy or to mooch off of others but when we work hard we're no longer a slave to success we don't have to perform to achieve some sort of standard and then we can also rest from our work without being anxious hopefully you know that's that's the goal as we reflect sometimes that takes a while to work into our hearts but uh, as we let go of it, let God um, be God, uh, we can rest from our work without being anxious. All right, today we're going to have a chance to hear from Ben and Kelly Hanna, so I'll invite Ben and Kelly up and hear a little bit about their work. 
and how they've thought through these things in in their vocation. So maybe we can just start, Ben and Kelly, if you want to introduce yourselves and just tell us what kind of work you do. Yeah, so I'm Ben uh, Hanna. This is my wife, Kelly Hanna. We have uh, been in Cal Creek for about 16 years, um, and we are both working at the Shasta County District Attorney's Office as, as prosecutors. Uh, we both have been there for a long time. Kelly's been there for almost 25 years. I've been there, there for almost 22 years, so we've been in the office for a long time, um, and we are both in supervisory type positions at the DA's office. My title, official title, is Chief Deputy District Attorney, Kelly's Senior Deputy District Attorney. And for those of you who aren't familiar really with what the DA's office does, we are the agency in the county that, that is involved in criminal prosecution. So a law enforcement agency such as the Reading Police or the Highway Patrol or, or the Sheriff's Office will investigate a criminal case. They'll provide the case to us and we'll make a determination as to whether we're going to go forward with it, prosecute it, take it to court, all the way from filing charges up until sentencings and jury trials and things like that. So Kelly and I have uh, pretty much done and I won't speak too much for her, she can speak for herself too, but almost every job in the office over the last uh, you know, 20 plus years that we've been there. Ben is more in management now, he's the number two in the office and he kind of oversees everybody. I prosecute, I'm on what's called the Serious Offender Unit, so I prosecute solely homicide cases and I supervise a trial team that uh, felony trial attorneys, so I'm more still on the ground and he's in management making big decisions. So how does, the second question is, how does your work reflect God's good design from creation? So I think probably our, uh, sometimes we think about it, we think about it more of what the, happened after the fall. Uh, right. Because of, because of the, the depravity of man, we see that every day. But as far as what our work does to reflect God, good, God's good design from creation, I mean, I think we have a, a view of, of man that is maybe different than a non-Christian. We, we try, you know, at least we think of, of man as created in God's image. The, the value of a human life, whether you're, you're, you know, taking someone's life or you're stealing from them or whatever, you're actually sinning not just against that person but against um, someone who is an, an image bearer, who is, who is uh, someone that's created in the image of God. I also like to think that, you know, we, we are trying in this fallen world to, to bring a little bit of order out of chaos that has come post-fall, you know, because uh, obviously men um, aren't able to necessarily, um, we, we need those, we need those guides. And, and you know, we, in the law, the, the law is very clear, you know, we, we try to apply the law objectively. So, so it it's not, doesn't matter who you are, everyone is equal, we're going to apply the law equally to, to each of yeah, I was just thinking, I mean, maybe this jumps ahead, but it's kind of both questions, but you mentioned the image of God. It's in, you know, in Genesis 9, hopefully I'm not stealing your thunder where you're going, but um, you know, um, God is speaking to Noah, and he says, whoever sh- sheds the blood of man, I guess that's the fall, that only happens because of sin, but, but then he says, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So, so it's, it's not just you're not just offending against uh, you know you're not just when I beat you up or steal from you I'm not just sinning against you I'm sinning against an image bearer against God because I right. I violated your rights because in, in you so I'm, I you know sinning against God right yeah and we tend to take it for granted like human rights is right. we talk about it so much in our society and it's important but there's also that other aspect yeah and the human rights really only exist because you know God made us in his image right? but and, and then but also I think it's important to remember on the flip side you know we we also and I, I we were, Kelly and I were just talking about this the other day we also have to, to look at the person who's the offender who's committed the crime because he or she is also an image bearer too. Hmm. And so tempering that justice with mercy and not being just purely vindictive or retributive, you know, um, and right. making sure that that person is dealt with appropriately and fairly because there's we see a lot of, you know, not every single case that we deal with is, is I mean, everyone's sinful, but they're not all these bad people that are trying to kill us or hurt as many people. There's a lot of issues with substance abuse and mental illness and things like that that we really have to factor in. So seeing the, the on the other side of the coin, seeing that person as an image bearer, right. I think is important. Yeah, makes sense. So how does the fall impact work in your field? 
Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I think. Do you want to do it? It impacts it impacts our field quite a bit. You know, we wouldn't need um, laws. You know, man would not need to have these laws that we create if people weren't sinful, right? If everyone was living in a, a state of innocence, then you know, pre-fall, then you know, we would not be sinning against each other, hurting each other. So, it, it's a huge impact. But also, you know, we also deal with with sin in our workplace as well. You know, we we're talking about this this morning. There's not we're we're working amongst sinners as well. So we're not just thinking about the guys and the, and the folks out there that we're dealing with in the court situation. Everybody that we deal with has been impacted by the fall. Um, and, and, you know, the majority of people we work with are not Christians. So so there's that inherent, particularly in a in a management type position, as Kelly and I both are, you know, you're dealing with personnel issues, you're dealing with people trying to figure out what's going on and making decisions and things of that nature. So that impacts that. But as far as the actual work that we do day to day, yeah, there's, there's people who are sinners, and, and they're going to take every opportunity to hurt each other. And, and I think that the law sort of is a guidepost. I, I always go back to, you know, Romans 13 is is this idea of, of the magistrate having the sword. And even though the magistrate's not necessarily a, uh, a Christian magistrate, he or mm-hmm. she has that sword and is able to use it for the good of you know, the common grace, for the good of society, and also for the good of, of God's people that are in that community as well. Yeah. Yeah, these, I mean, it's interesting, like a, a prosecuting attorney, whether they're a believer or not, you can make a, I'm sure you can, you've seen this, but I'm, I imagine that you can make a good argument, you can, you know, dealing with facts and right. evidence and, you know, following the law, I mean, you don't have to be a Christian, I guess, to, to have. And you to, can be, and I met very, some very good, very skilled, very ethical prosecuting attorneys who are as honest as the day is long, will do a good job, and they're not Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so God is using them, even though they may not know that they're. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing to think, with given what we know as believers about the fall and the depravity of man, that I mean, I know justice isn't done perfectly, right. but that many times it is done, or that we have a process that that works at all. Right. <laughs> Perfectly as it is, and, and it, it does it does work, and we do our best. I mean, I, I can tell you all that you know that office is full of people that want to get to the right result and want to do the right thing. Right. I wonder the fall. I'm thinking thorns and thistles here. If it, you know, I know, and I know this is probably a common. You know, you guys are you know, there's a, a backlog and right. pro, pro, procedures that you have to follow to protect things from happening, but it's also a very pretty long process at times, right? I mean, it, how long does a normal will a case go? from, you know, the criminal act to completion at times? It, it depends. There's a lot of factors. Um, depends on, you know, how quickly law enforcement is able to investigate the case, uh, how quickly they're able to arrest somebody, how complex it is. If there's something that's a, a actual, you know, danger to the community, someone's out there actually physically hurting or harming people, we'll, we want to put those to the front of the line. Some of the less serious cases will take longer. Um, ideally, we like to get, you know, cases resolved and from... from committing the crime to the time that the case is all done, but hopefully in, in less than a year, but that's not always realistic. Years. Sometimes you, years. Homicides, yeah, I mean, they're more complicated. Yeah. Depends, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's. I feel like it's, sometimes it's apparent. It's hard to know, like, you know, which of my ch- child's children, how should I punish them when there's a wrong committed? And I'm sure it's much more difficult in, you know, in a setting like yours we have we have you know the state of california and the legislature and all their infinite wisdom has put out rules and regulations and you know punishments so so we have guidelines that we have to follow it's all written down in statutes and codes yeah part part of that process is not just the punishment of the criminal it is i can i can make it better for family i can make it better for law enforcement as a christian Hmm. that kind of changing Changing the perspective from punishment to something else is, okay. is, is something that I'm good at. I work very, very well with families of victims and hmm. work alongside with them for that whole year or two years, how long it takes, and try to make sure that, at least with my cases, they come out of it okay, mm-hmm. as, as good as they can come out of it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and maybe that's the last question, but I had here, how does the gospel reshape your perspective on work in your field? I imagine that's kind of what you're talking about. Is Well, it's, I don't know how, we talk a lot about it. I don't know how people stay in our field without faith, like mm-hmm. to see what we see and know what we know and not believe in the depravity of man and, mm-hmm. and Christ and law enforcement especially and burnout. I, if you don't know, you know, the gospel and you don't know what the purpose is, I don't know how people master our jobs as long as they do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that from my perspective, the gospel always think is, is uh, you know, as upset as I might get away at some what somebody does or how they how they react or things like that, I you know say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, right. I'm I'm uh, you know I am a sinner and I can't think of myself any better than the other the other person. I'm just somebody who God has chosen to. To call to himself, and so I pray for you know all all the people that I come into contact with, and it's hard because I always tell people nobody. I mean, most people in this room probably don't have a whole lot of interaction, if at all, with the, with the district attorney's office, and that's a good thing because we only get involved with people if, when something bad's happening. You know, Peter. Same thing with the police. You know, you see the police driving around and wave at them and everything, but you don't actually interact with the police or law enforcement unless you're either you're being arrested or accused of a crime or you're a victim of a crime. So I always have to think that, you know, people aren't always happy when they're dealing with us. And that's touching a little bit on what Kelly said. And so they may be upset and they're upset with us, but they're not really upset with us. They're upset that they have to deal with us because their loved one's been, you know, murdered or or sexually assaulted or, or whatever and we're having to deal with that. So um, just giving people the grace and not having that pride and 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 an immediate swiftness to being upset with somebody because you've got to think about it from the perspective of where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, you're entering into life with them at a moment of crisis Correct. almost every day, I imagine. Yeah. Do you? I'm wondering uh, for you as like employees of the government. Are you in those moments? Are you able to talk about faith at all or share? anything about the gospel with them or do you feel like that's kind of overstepping bounds of what's appropriate I don't, I don't think we can but you can see it people people can over a long period of time with a long relationship with family and the manner with which you care for people they usually know something's up hmm. they, most people know there's something up with me and they can ultimately in a relationship ask questions that I say of course I am Right. law enforcement knows I am because I'm obnoxious I'm pretty obnoxious about it <laughs> um, and those people, they, they the people I work with know that I am. But yeah, those victims. Hopefully, just being able to reach out to them in their worst time and yeah, see, yeah. but yeah, we can't really. And, and there's a bit more of an emphasis in, in both prosecutors' offices and in law enforcement agencies about this idea that you know supporting peer support and, and supporting those people who are on the front lines and see that. And you know, a lot of that is is providing just. A helping hand support. Um, we deal with people, you know, not just people from the outside in crisis, but our own our own people. We we, we deal with things and we see difficult things, and you know, we 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 both have images in our minds that we can't undo. And you know, police officers out there on the street, ten times worse. So, in those more intimate settings and those more vulnerable settings, it, it opens it up to to, you know. Um, Suggest, hey, can I pray for you or can I pray with you if that's something that you're interested in? But obviously, we're not able to, you know, actively proselytize. But like she said, you know, when, when you're having, when you have a little bit of a more of a relationship and a, a more intimate relationship with folks, you're able to, you know, suggest to them, hey, you know, reach out to your own faith community or, or prayer or whatever to, to try to deal with these kinds of situations. And I also talk, when I talk about cases, I do my best for my own heart, but for a victim's family's heart to talk about that we ultimately don't have control and that over what's going to happen, like it, mm-hmm. it's not going to be how hard we work or our choice and try to get them away from vengeance, like that only... So a lot of the things I'm talking right. about, you usually can guess that I have. Yeah, we're yeah. talking about the sovereignty of God without saying it's the sovereignty yeah. of God. You know, yeah. We don't have any control over things. But we'll, mm-hmm. we will do our best for, for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Anyone have any questions for Ben or Kelly? Comments? I just respect what you do and thank you for it. But I, when you said sovereignty, it made me think that has to be what you rely on to get you through each moment. <laughs> is that there is this God is absolutely sovereign, and we can trust Him. <laughs> so 
how important is, is that? In the beginning, I struggled a lot with the anxiety and stress. That if, I, if I don't work hard enough, somebody bad will get out and hurt other people. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I had to really, mm-hmm. I balance that fight all the time. Like if I work harder and do harder and do better, that person won't hurt someone else. But that's not, it's not going to sustain me. No. So I really am like, we're going to do what we can and, and there's going to be a purpose and, and what happens and that everybody is, what I say all the time is everybody's judged. Like even if they manage to get out from under the legal system, right. they're going to face judgment for the yes. harm that they've caused. Mm-hmm. That's hard for me. Like if I just work hard enough, I can get them and that's right. not a good help. Yeah, it's not sustainable because it's never going to work out perfectly. I mean, that's not. But you're right, justice will be done someday. Yeah. Kill? It's kind of similar, but in the same way, would you say that just because of the things you've had to see or work with or do, that it has in any way caused how you view God's sovereignty in regards to his faithfulness or his apparent lack of faithfulness to humanity or certain people? Like, has it caused you to have to rethink, well, how is God so good and yet still sovereignly ordaining these things? Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's a, a great question and it's a huge challenge, you know. We, when you see uh, children murdered, you know, dead dead kids, um, how is this part of God's plan? How did this happen? How did somebody you know, do this? How did... Yeah, it's, it, it's a really... Te- it's a test. And, that, and that's something that we have to really focus on and realize that, you know, um, God has a plan and, and just it humbles you as a, as a human, as a Christian, to not... It's a challenge not to get angry and not to get upset and say, why did this happen? But it humbles you and say, God had a plan and I don't know what it is, but... And sometimes I, I get upset when I find myself thinking that because that sometimes seems just like a cop out. But you know, I can't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and if he gave his own son, I mean, if he entered into that suffering with us, but right. I know it doesn't it doesn't give us all the answers. But at least we see that he he entered into that world with us. Yeah. Um, brief comment. I'm going to pray, in, but go ahead. Do you have a quick comment? I just want to say that. Um, it, it, it was an incredible shift in perspective for me when I began to realize the duly appointed protectors of the public good factor and, and how uh, broadly promoted the notion that people in positions such as yourself are the bad guys that are going to take away all our fun or the rules are bad or any of that kind of stuff, you know, and, 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 and to be shifted. And I, wanted, I was wondering, like, how impacted by that perspective you guys are. You know, and, and I'm a very rule-oriented person, so I kind of followed and fe- fell into this job. Kind of like I like rules and I like guidelines, so I, I think that was good. Um, but you know, we, we try to we try to do a lot of outreach in the community too to explain that you know we we want to be not just reactive, like after a crime happens, making sure that, you know that people are taken care of, but also somewhat proactive. You know, going out and educating people on on dangers of drugs and, you know, internet stuff and things like that to try to say we're more than just the guys out there trying to keep you from getting, you know, having fun. We're trying to, to protect you from the, the bad bad stuff that's out there that you might not know about. Okay. young people. And this is the last thing, and people have a stretch to hear this, but the guy who just murdered his wife in court is no more or less a sinner than I am or you are. And I know he did a bad thing and I like to punch him a lot of times, but coming back and saying, we just caught him in his obvious mm-hmm. When there's a room full of people here who are mm-hmm. actively sinners and not much better than him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's interesting to reflect that this work is also God's work. He is a judge. There's like a system of Accusation, and you've got this all these charges against you. And I, and I sometimes I think about what it must be like to be judged by God and know that I'm guilty, and and know like my just dessert is to go to prison, you know. And and how how great the salvation is. Mm-hmm. It's, it really gives us a, gives me a different perspective on the work of Christ because if I was in a court, some guy over there is accused of a crime, and and some random guy walks in off the street and says, "Oh, I'll take this. I'll take it for this guy." You know, I know he did the thing. I didn't do anything wrong, but he did it wrong, and I'll I'll, I'll take the death penalty or I'll take life in prison as a as a human 
judge or as a human in a criminal justice system, I said, that's not fair. Mm -hmm. This guy right here who did the crime is the person that needs to, to go mm -hmm. away. You, what, what's your deal, buddy? I don't know why you came out off the street to do this, mm -hmm. but that's exactly what Jesus did, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, like, the, the courtroom aspect of we are all sitting in that the defendant's seat, you know, the guy who committed the crime, and somebody comes in and says, I'll, I'll take the penalty for him. Um, it's, it's amazing. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Our God in heaven, we are just so thankful for the work of Christ that He finished on the cross all that was needed for us to be made your children, to be adopted into your family with a hope of eternal inheritance, the resurrection that we no longer fear judgment because we know that Christ has borne it all in our place. I pray that you'd help us in our work to to serve you out of joy, not out of a sense of uh, achieving or, or working for your to earn your favor, but out of your uh, out of a sense of joy and pleasure as your obedient children. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.